good merry christmas kind of feels like it now huh we got the the music stuff's out how many uh have some sort of like nativity in your scene raise your hand it's in judgment or not if you don't that's cool okay a lot of us do um several years ago we bought the fisher price nativity scene have any of you guys seen this one uh anybody have that one my four-year-old has discovered that this year and if you, if you hit the angel or you push on her head, she sings Silent Night, which is ironic because I've been waking up every morning at five in the morning to Silent Night. And uh, the other day I woke up and I hear this, you know, role playing coming from the living room and I hear, Mary, help, help. And then I hear, hold on, Joseph, I'm coming, you know, like, so I don't remember what verse that was in the Bible, but uh, I think Isabel has some access to stuff I don't. Um, But yeah, we've got this thing. And what's funny about this figurine set to me is that there's no shepherds in this scene. There's like a sheep, but there's no shepherds. Um, But you know, I've never seen a nativity scene with Herod in it. Have any of you guys ever seen one with Herod? Like our favorite Christmas character, the baby massacrer, right? That's that's not something that, that normally makes it to our, our nativity scenes or to our, our sentimental Christmas stories that we might share with each other, especially with our children. But the series that we're going to be diving into uh, for this Christmas season is this idea of Christ for all. And we want to look at who are some of these people who first met Jesus, who first encountered the Christ, and how did they respond to him? And it's really cool because we have uh, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We have rich and poor, people of different religious backgrounds, people from different countries, people from different ideas, men and women, and they encounter Jesus. And a bunch of the people who encounter Jesus, when they encounter Jesus, they respond just with awe and worship. They see the Christ and they say, Christ, we need you. And we're going to look at at several of those different people. But today we're going to look at Herod. And Herod encountered Christ as well. Or it encountered him, I guess. He encountered Herod. And and Herod responds very differently. As as probably many of you know the story, we're about to go into it. He responded not with one of joy and worship and just overwhelming excitement. He responded defensively. He responded angrily. He responded violently. And I think the beauty of us looking at Herod is while none of us want to relate to Herod, all of us at times in our lives, I think, have responded defensively to the story of the gospel, to the story of Jesus. We've we've responded uh, selfishly. We've responded even violently towards that which might encroach upon ourselves. And I think by looking at Herod, it actually opens up kind of a a picture into our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and challenges us this Christmas season. So let's go ahead and jump into it. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, so if you want to open your Bibles to that, 
Matthew 1 sort of lays a, a groundwork for where Jesus falls into kind of the genealogy of history. And then chapter 2 jumps right into this. Give you just a second to get there. Okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him to me, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it had rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, And they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gold, or they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who have sought your child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. And when he had heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in the city of Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. It's a pretty ugly story, isn't it? It's not really one of great excitement and hope. It's, it's sad. It, it strikes all of us. So let's take a, a look at who Herod was. It's interesting with Herod that there's actually a lot of history written about him. He was a pretty powerful ruler in the time. So we have all sorts of information 
um, outside of the Bible on, on who he was. So Herod, he's oftentimes called Herod the Great. He was sort of the patriarch of the Herod dynasty. Um, his family line, his family tree gets a little bit confusing because he had at least five different wives and he had a whole bunch of kids with all those wives and he kept naming them all Herod. So there's a ton of Herods out there and his grandkids are Herods. And so when you look in the Bible, there are several Herods, but they're not all the same guy, right? They're kind of descendants in a weird sort of a way. But Herod the Great, the Herod we read about in this narrative is sort of the, the, the leader, the, the head of this dynasty. And Herod came to power about 25 years after Rome had taken control of Israel. So he goes into Israel, and Israel was pretty tumultuous at this time. They weren't super stoked about having Roman rule them. And so there was all these sort of uprisings that were taking place. And Herod comes in, and he just slams down his iron fist, and he goes to battle with all of these uprisings. And after three and a half years uh, of war, he takes several of the leaders of these uprisings, and he brings them back to Rome, and they're executed before the Roman council. And he becomes a bit of a hero in Rome. He took this land that was filled with strife and war, and he conquered it. And so the, the Roman council is so excited about Herod. They, they draw him in. They bring him in. They say, okay, Herod, we are going to give you a new title. You're no longer just the ruler of this land. We're now going to call you the king of the Jews. And he goes home with this pride. And he gets to work. He's now got control. He's the king of the Jews. And so he built this massive seaport in Caesarea where um, to this day you can go and it's one of the, the wonders of the world for architecture in the ancient world. And he, he builds these, these giant um, uh, fortresses all around the area to, to fortify it, to protect it. But in Jerusalem, he wants to build something that he can really put his name on, something to be proud of. So he decides that he's going to build a temple. And the words that the historians quote him as saying is that he wanted to build a temple like the one of the ancestors, but even more magnificent. Now, Herod grew up at least partially in a, a Jewish um, worldview, a Jewish religious system. So think about how arrogant this is. He had heard that God himself had dictated to Solomon how the temple should be built, the dimensions and, and what exactly the temple should look like. And his idea is, I want to build a temple even more magnificent than God's. When I get done with my temple, people are going to look and they're going to say, wow, Herod is an awesome guy. Look at how powerful Herod is. And he builds this temple. And he's incredibly um, concerned about uprisings. And so he, he really comes down again with an iron fist on the citizens of the area. He sets up a secret police to spy on people to make sure that if anybody starts to rise up against him, that he can crush it. At one point, one of his ex-wives, he's afraid that she might challenge his power. And so he executes his ex-wife along with his own children from her so that they won't take power from him. And then one day he's in his palace and a bunch of wise men from the east come. They say, we're looking for a king of Jews, a baby. And he's scared. His power is challenged. That everything he's worked to build, all of his pride, all of a sudden is on the line. 
he responds terribly. Now, I know for most of us, when we read this story of Herod, we don't naturally put ourselves in his shoes. I would assume that none of you have the temper that he has. Okay? I would assume none of you have done the horrific stuff that he did. But I think for all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, there is a part of Herod that is also true of us. That there is a selfishness within all of us that wants to protect ourselves, that wants to, to make, to shape our own world for ourselves, that doesn't want to give up power to anybody. And the Christmas story, in its very nature, challenges all of our power. It challenges all of us to submit to something that is greater than ourselves. And that's kind of the first point that we have here in our notes, is that what I see in this passage is that there is something challenging about the story of Christ. And it is this, that it challenges our power. It forces us to ask the question, if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the king, then that must mean that I am not the queen or the king of my own kingdom, that my life must be marked by submitting to him instead of just submitting to my own desires and my own needs and my own wants. So often we think of Christmas just as this cute, sentimental story, right? It's about this cute little baby that was born. That's not the story of Christmas, right? Cute little babies are born every day. You can get entire calendars of pictures of just cute babies. The power of the Christmas story is that God himself came into the world, that God chose to pierce the divide between heaven and earth and enter into our world to bring salvation, to bring sanctification to a humanity that desperately needed him, to people like you and me who were lost and needed him. And he came into that world to bring us that hope and that salvation. And if that is true, then the message for us is to submit to that truth is to submit to him. And that's exactly what Herod didn't want to do. So again, imagine Herod. Imagine he's sitting in his castle, in his throne room, and this entourage comes in from the east. Any of you ever seen the movie Aladdin? Some of you, a couple of you? Remember that scene in Aladdin where like Aladdin comes rolling into town and it's like there's bands playing music and there's elephants and camels and Prince Ali, you know. Obviously that's a, a you know, over the top cartoon version. But I think that actually is probably more realistic to what the wise men coming into town look like than what we often think about, which is like a bunch of homeless backpackers like cruising into town with super expensive gifts, right? That's that's not the scene. These were rich nobility, and they come rolling into town, and Herod is probably really feeling good about himself. He's the most powerful man in the East, and these guys come rolling in, and he's like, hey, what's up, guys? Yeah, just put your presents by the door. Come on in. Let me tell you some wise thoughts, and you can go home. And they come in. They say, oh, no, no. We're, we're looking for a, a child. We've seen this star. Can you tell us where the the Christ is, where this king of the Jews is, and it, it, it rocks him deeply to his core. In fact, the text says that he was troubled. I think that's a bit of an understatement, right? Troubled is what happens when I can't find the remote control. Like, that's not, that's not what, what happens here. In fact, it says he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. That says something, doesn't it? 
What a nasty dude he must have been that when the king got angry, everybody in town shut their doors. Everybody in town tried to kind of stay out of his way because they knew something bad was coming. You ever heard that expression like happy wife, happy life or, you know, happy spouse, happy house? Uh, You know, maybe this one could be like happy dictatorial clown, happy town. I don't know. That was the best I could come up with. But all of Jerusalem is, is freaked out because they know that, that he doesn't like losing his power. That in his title, in his identity, was all of these things that he held so dear to him. He knew that because he was the king of the Jews, he got to go back to Rome and to wine and dine. He got to live in the palace. He got to, to ensure that his kids would take over for him. Now, again... The challenge, I think, sometimes is to, to put ourselves in these shoes, right? To, to think about, okay, how do we respond in this way? And again, hopefully, none of us have responded this way. But what does it mean if Christ is the king? What does it mean if Jesus was not just a cute little baby who was born 2,000 years ago, but Jesus was God himself, and he came to rescue you and I from our own brokenness, from our own sin? Then, if that is true, my life's greatest accomplishment is not just what I can accrue for myself. It's not just what I can, the reputation I can build for myself, or even the morality that I define for myself. My, my greatest accomplishment is fully submitting myself to this king and saying, Jesus, I will follow you. I will obey you. Teach me what it looks like to be your follower. And this, I think, rubs us a bit the wrong way. It's hard. We had a, a question. We did like a survey a while back. Some of you might remember taking it. We called it our measure survey. And we, we wrote down several questions that we thought would help us as a church just remind us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what discipleship looks like. And one of the questions we wrote down on that survey was the question of, I find joy in obeying God even when it's countercultural or requires sacrifice. Some of you might remember answering that question. And it was actually a question that, that many of us responded positively to. We said, yeah, at least sometimes I, I can find joy in that. But isn't that part of the challenge of following Jesus is that that following Jesus requires us finding joy and finding our focus and obeying him and not just doing what we feel like we can get away with, not just doing what we feel like makes sense to us. I was thinking of little examples in my own life, and I was just thinking of the example of like, have you, any of you bought like a used car on Craigslist? I know not many of you based on the cars out there in the parking lot, but some of you I'm sure have, right? It's hard to get your Tesla off Craigslist, I know. But, um, but you know, there's that part, if you ever buy a car on Craigslist, that you agree on the price of the car. And then every person I've ever bought a car from, there's also this discussion that happens after that when you're filling out the bill of sale, when you then decide how much you're going to say you bought the car for. Any of you had that experience? Because you pay tax on less if you, you know. And I was just thinking about that. Like, it is completely normative in our culture to mark down the price you sold that car for. And I have been guilty of that myself. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds fine. Whatever you want to write in there, I'm good with. I don't care. And I'm thinking about this. So 
Will I find joy in being a person who is honest? Being a person that, that stands behind my word, that doesn't lie, even if it requires sacrifice, even if it's countercultural, even if it pulls at something within me that I don't want to do. And that's just one minor example of what it looks like to follow Jesus where it causes us to sacrifice. It causes us to submit ourselves to him. And by doing that, we have to give up a bit of our power. So let's look at some of the different ways I think that Herod had to struggle with Jesus being Christ. I think part of the reason that Herod responded the way he did. Um, So kind of the, the question is, if Jesus is Christ... What do we have to give up? And and the first point here in in our notes is that we have to give up our illusion of control. Okay, so if Jesus is Christ, we have to give up our illusion of being in control, of having everything together. So Herod was a person who had incredible control. In fact, he probably had control of more things than most of us have control of. And when these wise men came in, he immediately responded, how can I manipulate this situation to keep control? How can I stay on top? How can I keep keep things together? And so what's the first thing he does? He lies. He says, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be cool to worship this baby? I want to worship him too. Man, there's already one king of the Jews. What if there was two king of Jews? Two is always better than one. Bring him to me. Let's worship him together. And God undercuts that plan. So the wise men, somehow, God, God tells him, no, don't go back. Herod hears that. He's incredibly angry. And he just ratchets up the violence a hundred times, doesn't he? His first response, which just shows you a bit of his heart, his first response is, okay, I know how to keep control. I'm going to murder every baby under two years old. And I was reading some of the different historians. There's no record of that in history. And the historians were saying, well, of course there wouldn't be record of that because that would have been so acceptable as something a king could do that people wouldn't have even thought twice about that. That especially not the noble historians that were writing the history from the palace of King Herod, they wouldn't have even thought twice about that. How disgusting is that, that he misused his power in such a way? And even that, though, doesn't work. God tells Mary and Joseph they escape, they run off to to Egypt as refugees. And yet I was thinking about that, and from the perspective of Herod, in some ways, Herod won, right? If you think about it, he finished off his life as king of the Jews. Nobody challenged his authority. Maybe if Jesus would have stayed there in Bethlehem and people would have started talking. I mean, it's not every day a bunch of royal um, people from the east come and visit some poor family in Bethlehem. So people would have started talking and maybe people would have caught on that Christ was there, the Messiah was there, and more and more people would have come. And that would have been a challenge to uh, Herod's rule, but none of that happened. So he goes to to Egypt, Herod's able to pass on the throne to his kids. And in some ways, Herod might have felt like he won. But Herod, at the end of his life, he dies. And he goes and he has to stand before his creator and give an account for why when he was confronted with Christ himself, he turned his back 
but he missed it. Missed it altogether. And not only did he miss it, he passed that on to his children. His grandchild sat over the court hearing of Jesus as Jesus was crucified. And they missed it all together. So sometimes I think we, we feel like we have control. We feel like we have everything together, but in reality, we don't. And part of the Christian life, part of this Christmas story is realizing that God is in control and our best life is submitting our control to him, saying, God, I trust you. I know that you're in control. I will not try to manipulate and win in this world for my own benefit. So often I think our focus is just if I can you know, have this certain career, if my kids go to this college, if I achieve these things, if I can pass on this inheritance, then, then I've won. And not that any of those things are bad. But this reminder in the Christmas story is that's not the greatest end. That's not the end story. Our end story, our greatest joy, our greatest achievement is knowing Christ and worshiping him. That's the thing that Herod missed here. When I think about how often we just try to manipulate and try to win and how fruitless that is, I think I was just thinking this week about Like, have you ever met anybody who believes that they know a system to beat the slot machines in in the casino? You ever met anybody like that? Like, no, I got this system. I know how to win at slot machines. And I always laugh a little bit about that because there's like a mathematical algorithm that guarantees that you can't win there, right? That guarantees that in the end of the day, the casino makes money and you go home with less than you brought there, right? That's just, that's just how the system works. So no matter how many machines you pull, no matter how much you run around, no matter how much you think you're doing, in the end, you still end up losing, And isn't that so often how our lives are, that we run around and we do all this effort and we think we win and we get all these main, like, victories in our life, and yet when we ask ourselves the question, are we really winning? Do we really experience what God has called us to experience, the life that he has given us to experience? Another um, thing I think that this passage challenges us to give up is our hero complex. We all want to be heroes, especially heroes of our own story, don't we? That's why all kids' movies, they have a hero. There's somebody that you want to be, somebody that saves the day, somebody that comes in and rescues. And I would be willing to bet that Herod viewed himself as the hero of his own story. Okay, I, I bet you he told his stories, oh, I am Herod the Great. I'm the one who saved this uncivilized region of Israel. I'm the one that put them on the map. I'm the one that restored their economy. I'm the one that restored their military power. I'm even the one who built their temple. They owe their religiousness to me. If it wasn't for me, they couldn't even worship God. I am Herod the Great. And the story of Christmas is that Jesus is our hero. That when Jesus came into our world, he came not as just another person. He came as our rescuer because you and I need rescue. So that makes us not the hero of the story, but the damsel in distress going, Jesus, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. And that, I think, is hard for us to wrestle with. I think it's hard for us to admit. I remember when I was in high school, we had, uh, my high school had like a kind of a prom thing, but in the winter, like a formal dance. And a bunch of, um, my buddies and I, we decided instead of spending the money to go to this formal dance, 
we were going to take that money and go snow skiing for the weekend. So we all kind of pooled our money together. We rented this little hotel room on the mountain. And, and it was on the ground floor, and it had this big picture window. And right outside the window was this really steep road. And this big blizzard came in that night. And it, I remember for us as guys, like full of testosterone, probably a little bit of codependency going on. This was like the best thing that could happen to us. We like, as soon as we saw a car like slide out into the snowbank, we'd throw our jackets on and we'd rush out there and we'd get whatever vehicles we'd have and we would rescue the poor folks from distress, right? We'd push them city folks out into the, although we were city folks too, but, and we just did that over and over. We'd get, we'd pull somebody out of the ditch and we'd go back in. We'd just sit there by the window like we were watching TV, waiting for the next car to slam into the snowbank. And we'd rush back out there. And I remember we went back to school that week just so proud of ourselves. Oh, you guys went to the formal dance. Huh. Well, we rescued people all weekend. And, and it, was like, it was like the highlight of our year that year. And we, it speaks to, I think, the core of us wanting to be in control, be in control of our own life, be in control of our own morality, be in control of our own um, salvation. And the beauty and the challenge of the Christmas story is that in the name Christ is the idea of the Messiah, the Savior, the chosen one of God who came to rescue you and I because we were incapable, incompetent, and unwilling to rescue ourselves. And the story of Christmas is not just that Jesus did a little bit so that you can do a lot. It's that Jesus did it all. So when we think about Christmas this year, are we willing to look at Jesus as that, as truly our Savior, our Rescuer? The last thing I think Jesus being Christ causes us to um, to wrestle with is, is sort of the obvious one here is our selfishness, right? That's ultimately what challenged Herod the greatest is that Jesus challenged his selfishness. Herod wanted to be in control. Herod wanted to have the power. Herod wanted to have the wealth. And he didn't want to share that with Jesus, even if it meant salvation for himself and for the entire world. On Christmas Eve, we're going to look at um, who is Christ from the perspective of the wise men. So I won't totally go down that road now. We'll save that for Christmas Eve. But in many ways, the wise men are kind of the exact opposite of Herod in this story, aren't they? The wise men have very little knowledge. They have very little to go on. All they know is that there is this Christ, this King of the Jews, and they want to know more. They want to give their worship. They want to sacrifice for his sake. And Herod is the opposite. He wants people's sacrifice for himself. He wants the benefit of other people's generosity. He doesn't want to give it. Now, over the Christmas season, we think a lot about generosity, right? That's part of the Christmas narrative, at least here in the U.S., is about giving. And I think that's beautiful. But for most of us, that spirit of generosity kind of peters out after about January 1st, doesn't it? got to be generous. It's about Christmas. It's a time to give, get your taxes done, you know, get your benefit. And then sort of after that, it sort of wears out. And I think a lot of that is because we don't find the, the source of our generosity in just our overwhelming gratitude and worship for who Jesus is and what he has done for us. 
the selfless act of Jesus, that Jesus would come into a world, into humanity, to experience the pain and suffering of our world for our salvation. As we wrestle with that, it challenges the core of our selfishness, the core of our greed and our manipulation, and it calls us to worship. And from that place of worship, I think we can find genuine generosity. Genuine generosity, not just for the sake of generosity, but out of a lifestyle of gratefulness. There's one last point I want to kind of wrap us up on here, get us to think about a little bit. It's this, it's this point. is This year, let's make sure we don't miss the Christ in Christmas. And here's what I mean by that. Herod is a guy that should have known better. He did know. Like when the wise men came to him and said, hey, we're here looking for Christ, the king of the Jews, Herod didn't say, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this Messiah. At some point in Herod's upbringing, he had heard of the Messiah. He had heard of this chosen one that was going to be sent by God to be the rescue of the world, or at least from his perspective, to be the rescue for the Jews, to be the rescue for Israel. And so when these wise men came, he knew what they were talking about. And on top of that, when they asked questions, when they said, where are we going to find this guy? He had the resources to find that out. On his staff, he had scribes and religious leaders that had scrolls that they could open up, and they knew exactly where Jesus was to be born. And on that night, he was told by his scribes that Jesus, the Messiah, God himself, was five and a half miles away from where he was sitting. He could have easily gotten up and walked down to Bethlehem or gotten in one of his many chariots that I'm sure were waiting, ready for him to get on. And he chose not to. How much different this story would have been, how much different his future would have been had he have gone down and seen and worshiped God. Colossians 2, the the study that we're just in in the book of Colossians, it reminds us that Christ in Christ, the whole, um, uh, let me not misquote this like an idiot. Um, I wrote it down here somewhere. Oh, yeah. Just that um, in Christ, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, it dwells in bodily form in Colossians 2, 4. Think about that for a second. That Herod could have walked down, he could have looked into that manger, and he could have seen the fullness of deity, the fullness of God in bodily form, and he missed it. Now, what does that mean for us? I think we have the same opportunity. We are launching into a season where we are going to be surrounded by images and reminders of who Christ is. Even in the secular society we live in, there is no shortage of images and reminders about Jesus coming to this earth on Christmas Day. Are we going to see that? Like really see that? Are we going to really worship him as the Christ, as the Savior? Or are we going to allow just the busyness of life, our selfishness, the other stuff we have going on to cloud our vision and to keep us from from seeing the Christ in Christmas? So let me close in prayer and just, yeah. 
Jesus, you are our rescuer. You are our salvation. You are our Christ. You are the Messiah. Um, I just pray as we celebrate Christmas that we don't celebrate it this year somehow devoid of you or, or some sort of miniature version of you, that we celebrate the fullness of who you are and what you've done for us. God, we praise you and we thank you that you are great. Um, God, we thank you for coming. We thank you for your sacrifice. So God, teach us and show us the fullness of who you are this year. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.